so um, for Maxi, for, for your for your your game that you that you ran, um, I understand that we, I mean, we, the audience, need to know a little bit more about um, your your Verdant's Cascade setting. Yeah, definitely. So maybe because uh, I think Beth knows a bit about that. Maybe you two could um, like lay that out for everyone. Okay, sure. so um, just to start with, I'll say that in the previous QCon games, uh, where I've been running games in, I've been running it in primarily a world known as Verdant. Now, that's not the only world in my setting. There are three worlds that make up the entirety of the setting. Verdant is just the primary world. It's the one in which um, all the standard races from the player's handbook are completely legal, except like um, halflings, I think, I leave out. And um, it's really a very, very traditional sort of uh, RPG fantasy setting. Like, nothing very different. Syrif, which is where I've done um, this QCon's games in, is completely different. Um, Beth, how would you describe Syrah? It's certainly a fantasy setting. I I don't really. It's it's got a lot of um. It's got a lot of very original kind of homebrew races. Like I guess the only ones you'd really recognise would be the Asimar and um, uh, like dark elves and stuff. Because you know, then you've got like the flower elves who are kind of like wood elves, but they've got like horns and flower shit going on. And you've got, like, kind of dwarfs, but they're, like, robot people. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got, like, there are a lot of vampires in this setting. Like, being a vampire is just, like, a default human thing. Like, that's, like, default. It's, like, all humans got turned. Like, there was, like, this event or something that happened. Yeah. <laughs> this is where Maxie's like, okay, wow, Beth so- has <laughs> not been paying attention. Beth has no idea. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> you're doing pretty well. Um, okay. So like, uh, I'll I'll jump in here, intervene, and save you from drowning. Okay. Um, you are so a lifeguard, all so three you... worlds of my setting are connected to each other. They're all connected to the primary world of Verdant, who, which is like responsible in the creation of the other two subworlds, and those subworlds are Syrah and Etheru. And uh, for the Cyrus setting, I would describe it as an uh, ancient world, primal, high magic, uh, non-West European queer theme setting. And uh, what, that, what that means is that I didn't want, um, I didn't want to have to do stuff like taverns and like big cities or anything like that. Uh, I wanted like people to still be primarily nomadic and very small settlements. Um, magic in the setting is it's everywhere. It's like radiation because what happened twelve thousand years um, before the setting starts is that within the core of the world of Syrah, there was an incredible amount of mana, and it was just chaotic, and it kept replicating and it was like bursting at the seams till eventually through seismic activity it broke through into the surface of the world and like atomized basically uh alex does um somewhat different with raw manner where it's like liquid but like for me it's more like atomization and radiation and the, the setting uh, just briefly the liquid thing is 
generally understood in places where it happens to be like an un an unnatural uncommon form based on like uh, what's what's the word um compression uh mm. normally it, it is actually like a, a very much a much more similar thing of just having it be atomized like in the air around you well it's like very highly concentrated all the time and originally when like I'd say as a comparison to our own real world, it would have been like the Bronze Age sort of thing. That was when all of the original races, which started out as humans, elves, dwarves, orcs, etc., were changed, transformed, and mutated by the effects of uh, exposure to mana into all of these custom-built races that I created and have worked on and edited over an extensive period of time to the point where I'm pretty happy with the way that they're all laid out. They've each got um, their own um, their own culture, their own customs, and life, for the most part, um, for the people of Syrath, has gotten a lot better because after the surges happened, the thematic surges, which was what they call the event where mana through seismic activity burst through into the surface of the world and started changing people. The gods then acted in an event known as the Severance, where they channeled their divinity and uh, planar energy into a singular strike to um, that would go straight through the center of the breaking continent and pierce the core with enough stabilizing divine power that it would just like keep it under wraps for an unknown amount of time but presumably for a very very long time it's like a slow acting um i guess like it's like when you add an alkaline to an acid mm. yeah it's like pretty much like that uh, it's like gaviscon for heartburn <laughs> what that's what the gods did um but the reason that's called the severance is more than just of them severing the continent into three different continents it's because they severed themselves from the outer planes and now gods live in the world amongst mortals uh they can like still get in they can still channel energy from the outer planes which is why they are able to maintain their power but they can't occupy them anymore so they've had to they've had to deal with that over the 12,000 years and of the three continents i'm running a campaign setting at the moment with beth Mm. Um, where it's all set on Afroya, which is like uh, very in the north. It's sort of Baltic and um, Finnish, and mm. in the uh, the midland of the continent, it's like ancient China. And towards the south, it's East Africa. Mm. And um, you guys are having like a proper wind waker of it, sort of thing. Oh, yeah, You're like yeah, traveling, yeah. traveling around, yeah. and. Um, yeah exploring all the regions and i love it that's really really what i want yeah no and yeah obviously like that's one that's of the not... aspects i really like is the the exploration aspect like i i despite the fact that i cannot accurately describe your setting at all and i seem to have not paid attention to anything you said <laughs> even though i have i like i do enjoy your game a lot because there's this real exploration aspect and it feels very cool and i also enjoy playing a child's detective slightly slightly meanly because it's sort of like a slightly like low tech setting and i was like i'm gonna play a like extremely victorian steampunk based character and maxi was like okay fine 
Maxi was like the Nicolas Cage meme face. Um, I just like had my hands in front of my lips and I was like, oh god. Mm. Okay, fine. Fine, yeah. So it's like, why can't you just be normal and be a, like <laughs> like a, a normal character in Matt's game? Why do you have to put the, the suffering on, on me specifically? And I'm like... Mm. Well, I mean, I get my revenge in lots of ways That's by true. constantly reminding you narratively that you're a child. That's true. And, like, having you interact with other children who don't see you as anything more than a child. Yeah, and I'm like, no, I'm better than you. Anyway. Anyway, yeah. So, for for QCon, I didn't want to do anything on Athroya, while, especially while I was doing the main campaign. So I thought to myself, I'm going to do something on Okeen. And Okeen is the continent which is, like... Um, it's a bit South American, so it's got inspiration from Mayan, Inca, and Aztec cultures. And it's Polynesian as well, especially Samoan, because it's got all these islands around it. And um, it's also like Sri Lankan and Cambodia and Thailand sort of thing. So it's like uh, loads of jungle, lots of mountains and stuff. And it's like, I have a lot of fun with Okin. And... I set each game in a different point, uh, in a different place in Okeen. I um, set the first game in a region known as Darket, and in the second game, I set it in a region known as Manoy. And like with Alex and like with my previous games, I wanted to interlace these two games. I, I wanted there to be a theme. I wanted there to be like something to connect both of them. And, alright, so here's the thing. Um, Alex was talking about, like, the mistake of running um, five games at QCon. It's nowhere near as bad as that for me, but I go to QCon to play games. So I was in other people's games for every single session other than my own actual games. And there's only, like, a small time window before my game would start. And it was, like, incredibly anxious to, you know, um, get everything ready for your own game while you're in the middle of someone else's. And uh, that's that's something that I may want to work on, uh, work on, like, if there is going to be a next QCon, hopefully there should be. And hopefully I'll, I'll be there. Um, I'll probably give myself more breathing space. But um, I, I like being in other people's games. I like trying new stuff. I got to play in Exalted and... Um, uh, Hunter the Vigil, which was like Hunter the Vigil, Father Ted, which is a really funny game. Anyway, um, so what I decided for the, the the theme in which would link the first game to the second is that I wanted the theme to be revenge. Woo. So uh, I I was really really excited about this concept. I was like, okay, so the party A in the first game, are going to play this like any normal Dungeons & Dragons game. I will like um, have a couple of weird stuff in there to make it fun for them, and a couple of random wild magic effects, and I think they'll really dig it, and like stuff that I will explain that their characters have never ever seen before. And when they, when they get to the final villain, I then wanted the next game to follow in the footsteps of the first game by the villain's friends find what they find out what they did 
to the villain of the first game and now are out for fucking blood. Now, one of the um one of the things that I was really really worried about and what uh, and what I wanted to avoid above all else was the second group being evil. I I didn't want them to be like, "Okay, we're the bad guys and we uh we're with this group of minions and we're going to we're going to avenge the master and like uh kill kill these heroes." I was like, "No, no, 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 no. I don't want to do anything like that." I wanted the second party to think that the first group were the villains and to feel entirely justified in retribution. And um so I'll go through like I guess the playlist of the first game. Uh so in the in the first game I had a kobold monk called Attila who was played by Raquel and Attila was great actually like uh, Attila did all of the stuff that um uh, a good punchy monk would do and Attila had this habit that I like paid attention to and replicated in the second game um of asking people what their associated faith was they they kept like asking like uh what what god do you believe in and like what what's your um personal philosophy and and stuff like that and i was like i don't know why attila did that i just noticed that they did it a lot uh then there was i love this name by the way gustam the bird folk paladin nice gustam is such a good name for a bird folk <laughs> that was played by uh nessa and um gustam was very, I think, uh, monetarily motivated because one of the first things that Gustam established uh, when they appeared in the in the first game was how much they were going to get paid, uh, especially from like this small village that probably didn't have a lot to begin with. But I, I accounted for that possibility. Then there was uh, Zoltal, the changeling cleric played by Daniel. I loved Zoltal. Like, I absolutely love Zoltal's energy. It was fantastic. Um, Zoltal was very talkative, uh, an incredibly nervous individual who um, was a bit of a prankster and had gotten themselves in a lot of trouble in the past and um, who the party did, like gave a little bit of a harsh time to um, because what, what the thing was that in the village that uh, the party were going to help out in, it was a changeling village. Everyone here was a changeling. And we we established, I, I can't even remember how this came about, but like Zoltal, uh, Zoltal's player character was like, I'm probably from this village. So I was like, great, you can be the point of contact then for the, uh, the rest of the party. You, you can meet them. And then what happened, which like really, really struck me, was that they wanted to roleplay, like, them finding out the information before they met the party. So we improved about 10 minutes of information exchange between Zoltal and the high, uh, the elder shaman Meza, um, of, like, finding out what had originally happened, like, what the trouble was. And um, then Zoltal like walks out of the the shaman's hut and then finds this group of people standing there, like um, looking a bit. Oh, what's going on here? And then Zoltal runs over to them and like, oh great, um, are you adventurers by any chance? Because we got a serious problem. 
And I was dead worried when that started happening that the other players wouldn't be into this like one-on-one between the uh, the DM and one player character just out of the blue. But like, no, they were really into it. Mm. And that, that was good. And It's, it's, it's uh, always good when that happens, when you, you think, oh, this is going to be too high concept for this group of people who barely, barely know me, but they, they really get into it. I remember being surprised that way at the... Uh, for the for the the mountain game at the first group, really getting getting into I think I mentioned this on the podcast really getting into the concept of building the the dungeon and going so far as to have opinions in character like characteristic opinions about what should and shouldn't go in. Yeah, and like with the first ten minutes of the game, we pretty much established what sort of a person Zoltal not only was but who they were in the village and. They were the village prankster, and the uh, the elder shaman Meza did not trust them as far as they could kick them. And it was like a quite quite a funny interaction between this like really annoyed older cleric who was like, "Zotal, we've been over this before. I'm not letting you into like um, the the back of the hut. You'll only like tell everyone." So just just leave the, unless you can find someone who's actually capable of dealing with this. Just get out of the hut, and lo and behold, Zoltor finds people. Uh, and then we have um, Davrov, the um, halfling bard, who was played by Mark. Um, Davrov kind of stuck with Gustam a lot, and they were, they were kind of like a double team. Um, there was Orlier, the um, Twilight Elf sorcerer. And, um, oh, uh, a Twilight Elf for, like, people listening are, they're reskinned drow. That they are, like, they have the aesthetic of Dark Elves, but I, I, I don't like, um, the, the Underdark stuff either. So I, like, no. made, I, I made Twilight Elves, so I didn't have to call them Dark Elves, um, to be a very sun-worshipping race of people. And uh, they have like an especially strong connection with the divine Eomachios, who is the um, divine of radiance, and providence, and uh, and justice. And um, this actually carries over in Okine, where like uh, the Aztec parts of the continent are. It's mainly Twilight Elves who live there, and they have a very Aztecian sort of culture where they revere light. They revere um, Eomachios, who is like the aspect of the sun. And um, they were a wild, uh, wild magic sorcerer, and they were played by Phelim. And uh, Phelim actually uh, tripped me up by coming to the table with like a custom-made character, who I had to then very kindly say, "I'm really sorry, but you can't run your custom-made character in this setting." I was I'll, terrified I'll... of that as well. Yeah, it it happened on both of my games actually. Oh no! Uh, yeah. No, I, I I didn't have anybody uh, do that. I, I'm kind of wondering now if I like implied in the game description that that would not be allowed, which I think is a way of doing it. I mean, yeah, like I kind of feel like people are like, well, yeah, that's uh, I can't mm. just. Well, um... I don't know because um, they they use the you you don't get final say of what goes in the the game description. The um, no, the no. like managing committee do and. They removed my like separate description for the final game, so I had to like you know try and do my best with what I had. So um, it's not perfect, but I think maybe that's like a thing to do. It's like if mm. you 
if you can't allow that sort of stuff, you know, do that. Oh, one thing I thought was really cool about Orlia was that, um, so there are two types of Twilight Elves, the ones who live on Okeen and the, the ones who live on Athroya. And if they're an Okeen Twilight Elf, they're probably very Aztec in their culture. But if they live on Athroya, then they're Baltic. They're, they have like um, much colder climes and uh, are generally like a hardier sort of people. And um, Phelim wanted Orlia to be from Athroya, uh, which, is, which is fine, which is great. But I love the fact that the wild magic sorcerer, um, the, the way that he played it was that they did a lot of ice magic. And I, I was super into that. It was like really, really flavorful for the character. So they were like casting a lot of Ray of Frost and stuff. Um, then there was the last person is uh, Sori, uh, a Dermalith rogue played by Lewis. Um, Alex, you've played a Dermalith before. Would you like to explain them? Um, they're essentially like humans or humanoid uh, beings, but it's exactly what it fucking sounds like. They have like stones growing out of their skin. Uh, in various places, uh, generally like crystals, like gemstones. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I ended up playing was a, a druid of dreams, who um, characteristically was a lot like uh, Luna Lovegood. I think was the uh, the inspiration for that. So I just took every druid spell that allowed me to communicate with animals or give other player characters weird presents. But no, they 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 are a a group a, a race of dermalith people, like skin rock people yeah i love them aesthetically mm-hmm. and um so they all come together they're they're explaining the situation by Zoltal, and the situation is that this village uh, of changelings in darket is built under the shadow of a mountain called the miho mountain and it's kind of like a sacred mountain to the people um especially amongst the the clerics who are called shamans the purposes of the setting and they often will uh go to this like midway into the mountain there's a like a carved sort of cave uh which is perfect for meditation and ritual and recently something weird has been going on with the mountain and seismic activity is beginning to start up again which like as i've already explained why um that is a terrible thing even more so than like normal seismic activity it could, uh, a lot of people are frightened of a resurgence of uh, the thematic surges. And uh, these seismic activities are getting more and more intense. And the Changeling people of this village thought that the answer would lie in the Miho mountain. And um, some clerics, some um, shamans went up to meditate and to try and like um, ritualistically appease the, the mountain spirit. And only one of them came back. And that one is called Nakali, who came back wrong. Who, who came back... Um, I described it when it began, that uh, they, they stumbled into the village, obscuring uh, their face. The first people who came up to them like started screaming. And um, some people who recognised Nakali threw like a, a blanket over his head and like ushered him away into Elder Shaman Meza's hut where he's been ever since. And the party decide to have a look at Nakali and they find out exactly what's wrong with him. That like 
as a changeling, as like someone who has the ability to take the likeness of other people and other things, um, Nakali's features are partially transformed by um, out of fear, and they took on the features of the last thing that was attacking them and that they had to run away from. And so half of Nikali's face is long, um, weirdly bluish pale. Um, one of the eyes is completely black and sclerical. Um, one of uh, the ears is incredibly long and pointed like an elf. And uh, the teeth on one side of their mouth are now shark-like sharp. And um, uh, Meza believed that um, once Nikali had calmed down enough, um, that the, the transforma- they would be able to transform back into their original self. So it was just like um, brought on by fear, basically. And now they were stuck like that because they were still really terrified and traumatized by what had happened. And Nikali had said like they uh, saw this creature that looked like an elf, but like no elf that they'd ever seen before in their lives. And um, that when they went into the cave, it wasn't like a cave anymore. It was like stepping into darkness. And um, there was weird metal everywhere. And that they could see the stars above their head. And they were like just trying to trying to explain as much as they could were, were like not really understanding much of what they'd seen. So like when the group were trying to do history roles and stuff, I... This made me feel a little bit bad by being like, yeah, even if they got like high roles saying to them, you really don't understand this at all. But because like there would be no reason that they would understand it. And um, so under the offer of a reward, the group decide to look into it. And so they're given supplies, they're given whatever they want from the village. and They head up into um, the mountain. And the first thing that they notice as they're like going towards the caves is that they can't keep encountering all these weird anomalies. Uh, they keep seeing these silvery rifts everywhere that keep getting larger and um, more randomly scattered about and more numerous as they head up towards the mountain. So then they start having to make checks not to fall into one. Um, at some point they do try and test them with a stick and they find that the stick actually pokes out of like a different rift. And um, they also encounter um, like creatures which look a cross between a normal creature, but it's been like gelatinous cubed. So they fight off these two monitor lizards, which look like jelly lizards with their bones still inside. And like uh, that, that was like um, that was a pretty decent fight actually. Um, I felt really bad for the rogue, um, but also the the Dermalif's ability for like negating acid damage really really helped there because um they got swarmed by these things and were thankfully taking half damage a lot as these like gelatinous monitor lizards was trying to dissolve them um so they they continue like heading up the mountain and they find the cave they go in and they find themselves in this completely darkened space with the exit behind them and the floor is like made out of this weird rippling mercury 
um, that like sends out ripples everywhere that they realize that they have to be quite careful on because it's it, it's like a sensitive vibration trigger and it causes like several monsters to appear. And what I really, really loved doing here was that, okay, Alex would be familiar with this and maybe some people who are listening, but um, you know the Unstable set from Magic the Gathering? Yes, it was my favourite magic release from 2017. So I liked all of the combining creatures together of that. It was done very well. So I replicated that here. Uh Um, They started fighting creatures that were a mismatch um, of like two or more different uh, monsters. And... um, one of them was like two spirits who had been sewn together. Um, well, not like Frankenstein sewn together. They've just like walked together. And one was like this good spirit and one was this bad spirit. And I think I called, they were called a torn. And they had a conversation with this thing. And the, the good spirit had like this really serene voice and um, was uh, telling the party very kindly to leave because they might get hurt here. And the, um, the, the dark spirit was like, get the fuck out or I'll kill you. <laughs> and they were started arguing with each other. And the, the party then like manipulated this. And um, at some point they, they had to fight it. And they ended up killing the, uh, the, the dark half. And it made the, uh, the good half kind of lonely and sad. Because, like, um, they were of the opinion that, um, well, they really weren't that bad once you got to know them. I know they shouted at me a lot, but they they just had, like, a lot of problems going on. And um, the Dark Elf had actually... This is what I mean when I said earlier that um, Zotal got a lot happen to him. Um, Zotal actually got cursed by the Dark Elf to be convinced that other people were holding them back in life. Which then, like, added another roleplay element to the character as they, like, started changing their interactions with the group, and that was quite funny. As then they started, like, not being as nervous as before and just be like, come on, let's go, you're holding me back. Let's go to the adventure. Anyway, it all comes down to this, um, this ultimate fight where they, um, they, they find out in this weird subspace that they're in that, um, they can... They don't have to walk anywhere. They can actually project themselves forward. And um, they, they're they able to like think their way up onto this, um, this area where they see the entity who was responsible for uh, the trauma that happened to Nakali and like what Nakali had um, partially transformed into. And it was an elf that they, an elf, type that they had never seen before in their entire lives it was a very unusually tall seven foot to eight foot elf of pale skin with like weird glowing pastel blue hair completely black eyes and like sharp teeth and um long fingernails and who appeared to be bent over and I had to then, like, explain out of character, because their characters wouldn't understand this, but, like, this complex machinery uh, with these weird electron rods all over the place generating um, uh, electricity. Um, 
and then the elf turns around and sees them and is like, oh, um, great, more more intruders. And I heavily based the uh, this person, whose name is Master Scholar Saru, on Peridot when you first meet Peridot from Steven Universe. Um, they, uh, well, she came across as being, uh, like, yo, the, the primitives are here. And will I will like talk to you as though you are simple-minded creatures who don't really understand what's going on here and can't possibly fathom the depths and intrigue of my research. And they have a conversation with Saryu, one that they did not like very much. Um, so Saryu was an elf that that was like definitely a thing, uh, but they weren't an elf from this world. They were an elf from Etherun, which is a high-tech setting in uh, the larger universe of uh, Verdant's Cascade. And the thing about Etherun is that it's like a sci-fi um, diesel punk setting of a completely destroyed world uh, in which magic is a scarce resource and uh, mana is very, very difficult to find and is highly sought after. So Saryu comes from this world which is like almost devoid of mana and which is like treated as this really precious life-giving thing and has come to Syrif where there is an abundance of mana, like more mana than they have, uh, than they know what to do with, that will eventually kill the planet and has begun studying the mana of Syrif and is trying to find a way to synthesize it and um, import it back to her own world. And this would like open up a whole new energy source for her people um, because like she's, she's a scientist and um, she wants to she wants to help the people of where she comes from. She wants to like provide them with this thing that they desperately need. And she figures like this uh, mana is going to destroy this world. So like if we harvest it, we're actually like um, extending the life expectancy of this whole other world. Saryu did not explain it like that. Saryu was very much of the, like, was, I really had to sell Saryu was being quite arrogant to, to um, and feeling above these primitive people of being like very matter of fact of like yes I'm harvesting the manner of this world I'm I'm going to use it and it's like I'm I'm having a few tr troubles with anomalies um but I'll eventually be able to overcome that so um why don't you be on your way and uh, get out of my lab and the party took that as like this person is destabilizing our world and is putting us under threat and is stealing um the the magic of our world and we should stop them so this pitched fight happened uh saryu had lair actions which was cool um because saryu activated some of the uh some of the electron rods which were like um channeling uh channeling the mana from the core and uh was part of her experimentation so then was like activating them to to strike lightning at the party which was triggering wild magic effects which um i didn't use from the wild magic table from the player's handbook i used them from the the net librum of random magical effects version 2 by oryx 
Uh, it's got some really good stuff, and it's like, um, it's a D1000 sort of table, but I only used the first 100, and, um... D1000? Like, what do you even roll for that? I have no idea. Do you, like, like maybe roll, like, two tens dice, and then, like, one... Would that work? I, th- I think you just have to do it over Discord or something. Um, I, feel, I feel like... Or, like, like just a random... Like... I want to say, people who are better at mental maths than me, obviously, um, don't react. Don't react, don't interact, that's that's the meme. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm pretty sure that you can continue, as long as you have like ways of discerning which one is which, uh, you can continue adding tens dice to the end of D100 construction to like multiply it by ten. I think you can. Mm. I, can't, I can't see, because it has like a, it has a zero and it has a one. There's not really any reason why that shouldn't work, I don't think. Yeah. I've got but, to say, yeah. though, um, while, while it's yeah, it's on the cards, I love option number 18, which is, like, the funniest shit to me and would probably make her character completely unplayable. And it's number 18, a distant but powerful army declares war on you. And I was like, how would you even deal with... A whole army declares war on you. Just you. I mean... I feel like that probably wouldn't necessarily have to have any impact in the session itself. Yeah, but like, luckily, just because no they one declare it. war on you doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to do anything about it within the timescale that you're actually concerned with. But that would be quite scary. That, that that would be like really really funny for a long term campaign of like you're you're randomly in a town and like a small scouting party is like there they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. It would be hilarious. Anyway, so um, I think four party members got hit by the lightning. And it was Attila whose like arms became invisible, which for a monk was fantastic. Because then she just got advantage on like her her, her punches. Right, because they like they can't see where she's punching. Um Orleo uh had like all these oils, sweet-smelling oils, like, oozing out of, um, his pores. Uh, Sori appeared to everyone as, like, a decomposing, uh, corpse. Of course Zotal gets hit, and I'll, I'll save that till the end, because, like, when I rolled for Zotals, it was the funniest- no, when they, when they rolled for Zotals, it was the funniest thing ever. It was, like, absolutely perfect for the character. And, um, they get into this fight- with uh, Saryu. And it, it's a good, hard fight. And she does, like, um, a changed-up version of Thunder Wave, which was, like, uh, done at a higher spell level. And instead of doing Thunder damage, I did, like, Force damage. And, um... But they, they eventually, like, they take her down. And how they take her down is actually quite important. Because they use Shatter on the Electron Rods. And I explained to uh, I explained to them that the electron rods themselves aren't magical. They're conduits of magic. They have like magic running within them, but they themselves aren't. They're just normal like steel um, shot pipes. So shatter was cast on them, and they all just skewer uh, Master Scholar Sarium. and then like um, so like she she dies like skewered by her own technology and the the party then leave and they go back to the village to collect the reward and that's where Zoltal finds out what 
the weird um, magical effect was when they get back. So they, they go back to um, their personal hut and they find that the vegetation within a uh, hundred feet of their hut is completely gone. And like um, Zoltal just like falls to his knees and is like, my cabbages! <laughs> and so like his, his entire fruit and veg garden is just fucked. And it was so funny, like, everyone was laughing at the misfortunes of this poor cleric. Because, like, now now he's got no food, and uh, now he has to, like, hope that the other villagers will be charitable to him. Which is probably what ultimately motivates him to being included in the second game, because now he has to travel around. That was, like, one of the things I was also concerned with. When it was established that Zotor was a member of the, uh, the village... What then would be the reason that Zoltor would carry on traveling with this party of people? Because they he had to travel with them. It was important to the next session, to, to the revenge plot. And um, I feel as though like the, uh, Zoltor's livelihood destroyed in the form of all of the vegetables being gone decided like, well, I've, I've got to travel and make money now with these people. And um, that leads into the next session. So... For the next session, I started off with um, six new player characters who I tell this story of how they were all handpicked by a woman called Master Scholasariu from their own world. Their, their, their relationship with this woman that I like put on all of their character sheets was that they were in some way very fond of or like apprenticed to. They, they, had, they had to have a positive relationship with Saryu. That was what was really important. To the point where she actually picked each of them to join her in her efforts to like be part of her team and that she was going to set up and get everything ready and that they were going to like come over and, and help and they would make this groundbreaking research that could potentially save um, countless lives in their own world. And lo and behold, they, they get to where she's been uh, been conducting her research and they find her skewered body and um, they then have to like they, they then decide like we can't let this stand so we're gonna find the assholes who did this to our friend and we're gonna make them pay and the 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 players were really really into that because like as soon as they picked up on what was going on they were like do we get to design the like the dungeon for another group of people and I'm like you absolutely do and they were like they were so enthusiastic about it and I was really really happy so um story wise I, I I explained to them that they they found those responsible for it that they've experienced no repercussions for their actions in fact they were praised for it and um that they've been getting stronger and stronger and um traveling around and the this, this second group, the, the Saryu Avengers, have been watching them for afar for quite some time and have determined that these guys are out of our league. We cannot take them in a fair fight. So they follow them all the way to the Manoi region and um, they scround... I, I, I give them a starting block of money of a thousand gold pieces between the six of them that they can all pull together or spend individually to be like, You've, um, you all come from the same world, uh, you all come from Etherune, and to blend in with 
the the people of Syrath, you've taken on um, new forms. You've taken on like masks with the abilities attached to the the uh, the races that you've decided to to become in order to blend in. And I didn't want to reveal to them what they actually were. I just told them that like you were you're from a different world. Like that, that what you are right now is not what you actually are. It's just a disguise. And you have you've acquired all this money and you can use it however you want to make sure that these people pay for what they've done in however you like. And um I'll run through the uh the list. There was Adrian, the Orion cleric, who was played by Ryan. And um Ryan immediately wanted to know what sort of cleric he was, and I like had to whisper in his ear he was a cleric of the void, which isn't actually a bad thing if you come from Ifarun. Mm. And uh, Orians are like humans who became plant people. Uh, then there was Alexis, the sea elf druid played by Chris, who was like uh, a, a land druid with the coastal one, which made the most sense for a sea elf. Uh, there was Piotri, the Sangramore warlock played by Daniel. Um, Piotri... Um, we established was where all the Sangramore are, are from, and uh, the Sangramore are like vampire humans, they're from Afroya. And most of them are like very ancient Chinese in like the midsection of the of the continent. But those in the north have a very like Laplander Sami sort of culture. So they like he chose like a Finnish name for his uh, for his character. He was also the uh, the other player who had bought a pre-gen character sheet. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, he was the other one. Uh, there was Orpa, the half-dwarf ranger, played by Sergei. There was, I love this name, by the way, Lurk Scalebane, the lizard folk fighter, played by Kieran. The only, like, the only person who gave their character a second name. It's amazing. And finally, there was Sungweer, the, um... Air Genasi Rogue, played by uh, Faram. And um, it was, like, really, really cool how this party got into it. Uh, they were, like, they, they put their heads together. They were really scheming about this. They uh, were asking all the right questions because what was important and what I had to do as a DM was that I had to give them monsters that they could use and I had to give them uh, a staging ground for where they ultimately wanted to um, make the first group go to, if that was a, a course of action that they wanted to take. I told them that the plan was entirely in their hands. And uh, I gave them three options. So I had to like prepare three separate locations that could potentially be the staging grounds. Um, so one was like a former Twilight Elf fortress that had now fallen into ruins. Uh, another was like the this like cavernous complex that led to a grove, and uh, another one was called Yoma, which if you've ever played the Shivering Isles DLC from uh, Elder Scrolls Oblivion, it was like Zedillion, the um, uh, the weird fortress that Sheogorath has you put back into order, where you could, where which like lures adventurers into to either kill them or drive them mad. And like that—that that was the whole point of this uh, this temple called Yoma. It was built by um, a demigod 
called Rasgon, who liked to hurt people a lot, and uh, especially liked it if it like caused them a great deal of emotional and mental duress um, while they were undergoing like the trials and horrors and traps of this place. And uh, the party learn about these these uh, three locations, and they choose the Twilight Elf Fortress. That they choose the ruins, and they get there, and they decide to a very smart move, scout it out. They look inside, and thankfully they creeped inside. That was that was really good because um, I established to them th- this is ruins, so there's going to be like a lot of structural damage, so you might want to be careful. And they did really really well on like. The, the like uh that the like movement checks and stuff like that and they eventually came into this large chamber which had a sleeping dark souls boss in it which was based on um uh great gray wolf sif and uh vort of the um Burrell valley it was like a combination between the two of them but it was like all gold and like had the, all these cool feathers and stuff Objection. and um well Sif, Sif is a good girl, and Vort is an abomination. How dare you combine them? I mean, it's my setting. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it, it's legal, it's the law. I, I have to inform you, Max can do whatever she wants. Okay. It says right here on this badge I gave her, just says Max can do whatever <laughs> she wants. <laughs> it's lawfully binding. Okay. So... They go into this temple and they edge around the Dark Souls boss and they find a viewing platform, which they are super into. They're like, uh, they find it behind like a secret wall. Uh, we're like, oh, not a secret wall. Like nothing had to move so that um, to cause a noise. Rather, it was like a, a very small doorway, which had like a minor illusion to make it look like a wall. So they found it. They go up to this viewing platform and they're like, great. We can watch him die from up here. <laughs> they were like, they were so enthusiastic about this. It was quite funny. And um, then they had to like, uh, they had to determine what monsters they wanted to um, to pitch against the the first party. Um, and I, I gave them like a bunch of monsters to choose from, like a complete diverse range. And I expected them to scout out these places. I, and... Um, the reason I gave them so many and made them like so far apart was that I was like, you guys can't go and check out all of them and um, be able to like lead the group through all of them because you don't actually have enough time. Because I actually gave them a time limit when the warlock and the cleric both received like uh, a mental message from their own world, uh, the, the cleric through... Um, uh, the connection to the void and uh, Piotri uh, through his patron and it was like you've spent enough time in this world and we're aware of Saryu's death it's time to come home and they were like fuck <laughs> uh, the parents want us back and so we, ha- we have to do this now we've, we've got to do this revenge plot now and we we can't we can't scout out all of these monsters and lead the party through all of them. Uh, we'd have to like pick and choose them. So they decided not to scout out any of them. They they were like, we're gonna like we're gonna do it live. We're gonna drag the party from the first group 
through each of these encounters and just see how it goes. Um, other means of like how they tried to trip up the party were, beforehand was that um, they bought a health potion and they asked around this village um, what kind of poisonous and horrific things are in the jungle. And they spiked this health potion with um, a paralyzing agent from a purple bellflower so that um, they would like offer it to an injured uh, party member from the first group and be like, oh, oh, here, this will help you immensely. And fingers crossed that person will, will fall down to the ground and be unable to move. Uh, they also tried like... Um, they tried like this yellow creeper, which was like ripped straight from the uh, the tube of annihilation because I really, really liked this horrible parasitic vine like um, flower that once it got its hooks into an actual sapient being would like dig its roots in and like take over their brain waves and stuff and turn them into a zombie. It was like it's pretty gnarly. And they, like, harvested a bunch of seeds of that and were gonna, like, um, the Orion, um, uh, Adrian the Orion cleric was going to plant growth them to, um, consume, uh, to, to, to attack the first group. And it was, like, uh, they, they, like, buried them and stuff and they, like, set up traps and it was, like, very, very cleverly done. Well, the important thing was to get the, um... That the first party threw all of the stuff that they'd set up and um, eventually to the the ruins where they could fight this Dark Souls boss and where they could be um, where they could be watched to be killed and they decided to split the party <laughs> which actually worked out really really well for them so two of them which was um, I think it was Sungweer the rogue and Ulpa, the um, the ranger, they stayed at the ruins to to wait for uh to wait for everyone else. Um, Lurk and Adrian, they were gonna be the sabotage committee, where they were gonna run ahead of each of the monster encounters and like hide in trees and stuff and intervene wherever necessary. Uh, and just, like, watch from afar of how things were going. And that worked incredibly well. It had one of the best moments I have ever seen uh, in perhaps, like, any of the, the games that I've ever run. And then we had um, Piotri and I, um, Alexis, who decided that, like, what their play was going to be was that they were going to be these scholars who would approach the, the first party and be like, we're working on a potion of true resurrection. It's going to be, like, revolutionary. And we need the ingredients from all of these various places. And we are, like, but scholars. We're not, we're not fighters. We, we don't know uh, how, how, to, how to hold our own against the, the horrible monsters that, that live there. But you seem like a, a strong, strapping lot. Um, could, could you guide us and uh, and fight these horrible encounters and help us collect the things that we need and we would be more than happy to share the secrets of this true resurrection po uh, potion with you. you like you would have the power of unlimited life in your hands and uh, if you don't believe us like look and they, they like showed them the bag full of um, 
seeds from the creeper vine as like um like this is our starting ingredient like we would um they had like advantage on the persuasion role because um uh, Alexis was assisting Piotr who was like doing the majority of the talking and was like sort of chiming in and keeping uh the level of bullshit going and I was rolling for insight for, from the group and only at one point did one person within the uh, the first party get suspicious and that was Attila the the monk uh which they were able to like dodge past eventually but um that they 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 managed to get the party involved with like the promise of of being paid in gold and like this uh access to a true resurrection potion it was going to be great and so they started like going through all of these encounters with monsters and what i did for uh for this particular thing was that i had to pay attention when the first group were playing of what their play style was obviously like um who favored what sort of spells and like needing to replicate that for uh for, for this game um who got healed the most who was the first to be healed to things like that and i kind of like improvised the mass combat rules from the unearthed arcana and like each of them had their own hit point amount but also like a collective group pool of hit points and uh, I was keeping track of like healing spells that they would have available and like their damage output versus the damage output of the uh, the creatures they were fighting because like I wasn't gonna do combat with a group whose players weren't there against all these monsters. That would be ridiculous. I was gonna like um, roll a couple of times like um, some D10, I mean um, some D100s and... Oh, it's so hard to like explain the mechanics of what I did, but it worked out really, really well. Uh, I was like trying to like verse who would go first between um the the first party and the monsters, and, like who did the most damage output, and wh- which of the party members from the first group probably took the most damage, and things like that. What I absolutely loved was the sabotage committee, um, Adrian and Lurk, who were hiding in the trees. Uh, Adrian specifically. Uh, as the spellcaster and um, Piotri, who was like standing back watching the party fight, they both started casting spells secretly on the first group to make them fail. So a couple of times, um, Zotal's like comes in to heal someone, and their healing was getting counterspelled. <laughs> Zotal can't even get a fucking break in the second game. So like all of the healing that Zotal was doing kept getting counterspelled, and That's such um, a <laughs> it was so good. I was really really impressed, and even when like um they they the, the uh the health potion stuff uh with the the poison in it failed, I was still they were still coming up with really good ideas spell wise to fuck over this other group of people. And I think my favorite moment of uh, them ultimately doing this was uh, I mentioned before with um, Attila the Kobold. I, f- I feel really bad for Raquel. I'll never pro- I'll never see Raquel again, but I feel really, really bad for what happened to her character. And um, so they get to um, this clearing where 
four posts had been set up in a makeshift wrestling arena. And there was this large, hairy, um, like, Tanaruk-type creature, which was, like, um, more appropriate for the, um, the, um, Southeast Asian setting. I, I gave it a completely different name. I think I called it Asuno. Um, who was, like, um, so wrestling over, um, wrestling in that sort of area would be called Malayuda. Yeah, I think I'm saying that right. Malayuda. And, um, or Malayuda. And they were, like, in the middle of their, this makeshift wrestling ring, shouting challenges at people. Because, of course, I was gonna do, like, I was gonna put wrestling in my game. And they, they see, they see this party, and they, like, they issue a challenge. And Piotry, like, tell, like, butters up Attila to go and, like, fight the Suno. So, As like you, well, you're you're the monk, and you're like clearly you're you're, you're clearly gonna like take this guy on, uh, like if no one else but you. And really. no, no one at any point pointed up that the kobold was like two feet tall, and the Tanarok was like eight foot, like. <laughs> and like Piotri especially wanted to get rid of Attila at this point because Attila was already suspicious. This this was after the point when Attila had like got a really high insight role to something that Piotri had said and had called them out on it, but they were able to like brush it under the carpet. But that had that had made Piotri wary enough of Attila that they were like, we have to get rid of the fucking Kobol. The next encounter, they have to die. So um, Attila gets into the ring <laughs> with this huge Suno and they get ready to like start fighting. And then Ryan, who's playing Adrian, who's like hiding in the trees as the sabotage committee, says to me, I cast hold person on Attila. (laughs) And Attila rolls a natural, like I as Attila roll a natural one. (laughs) So I want you to imagine for me, in your mind's eye, this tiny little kobold standing there in front of this giant, like just enormous creature ready to do battle, ready to, like, prove to everyone that they're this, like, yeah, I'm gonna beat this professional wrestler. And all of a sudden, their limbs seize up and, like, they, they're they unable to move. And Ryan tells me that um, the Suno automatically crits on, on like, poor Attila. So Attila gets turned into a pancake. Yeah, it's, good night, Attila. Good night, sweet Attila. We hardly... And I was like, I, I was... We everyone on the table was howling with laughter. I had to sit down. I was like, I was choking so much. I could not believe that that happened. It was phenomenal. And so the rest of the party rush in to 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 bring down the Suno together. And um, uh, so like at this point, Attila has died. I think Zotal was already killed. Um. Orlia gets killed by this uh, spirit of a giant called Wang Lian, who um, sp- who was murdered by Twilight Elves and so specifically hates them. And um, so then there's three people left. There's uh, Gustam, uh, Dorov, and uh, sorry, sorry. And they're finally led to the ruins and um Piotri um uh Adrian and 
Yeah, Adrian and Lurk run on ahead to get to the ruins and they like tell uh, Sungwea and Ulpa, hey, we're about ready to go. Uh, so we might as well get into the viewing gallery and, and watch the show. And um, Alexis and Piotri lead the remainder of the first group to the ruins, like the last three. And then they book it across the courtyard where they uh, they had previously ca- had um, some, some veteran uh, big game hunters capture this large cat-like monstrosity to let loose in the courtyard as soon as they were ready. So, like, they book it across the courtyard as fast as they can, and they, like, run into the ruins. And so, like, um, I think Opa dies to the giant cat monster. So then it's just Gustam and uh, Sori left. And I'm still rolling insight for those two, and they're getting really low insight. So at one point, Gustam, like... Uh, no, Sori yells at the uh, at uh, Piotri and um, yeah, um, who was it now? Piotri and Alexis. Like, don't go in there. It's like it might be dangerous. And like the group are like, they still haven't figured out that we're trying to fuck them over. It was it was absolutely hilarious to them. And um, eventually, when they actually get into um, the Dark Souls boss fight they realize that they finally cotton on to what's going on. And it was a really, really great moment where, like, Sori looks up at the platform where they're all standing from and, like, looks at the Dark Souls boss and then clicks in and goes, wait a minute, you're setting us up. And I think Piotr was the one who just went, no shit, we're setting you up! In, like, a really legit angry voice. At, like, um... who He was, like... I really liked Piotr's character and how much it came across um, throughout the game, how invested they were in their friendship with Saryu. Because at one point, I think the paladin comments that they... Um, Gustam comments that they met Sotol like a couple of months ago uh, during like uh, this really wild job uh, that they sorted out and they were laughing about it. And then... Piotr's like player character's eye starts twitching and he's like and he, he then like responds through gritted teeth oh how lovely it's really nice to to meet people under uh strange circumstances like really really angry and they um they like in the final fight um they all roll initiative and they become involved in basically taking pot shots from the gallery at the um uh, at Gustam and Sori, and um, when 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 they're downed, um, they presumably like take out the uh, the Dark Souls boss themselves, or they they like find a way out of there um, because we ran out of time at that point, so I was like wrapping up. Um, but eventually, how I ended the session was that um, the end of the day comes about. Your time is up, and you all stand in a circle. Um, the Warlock and the cleric like join uh, hands in front of each other across the circle, and um, a ball of shadow and light begins to appear between them. That starts to like spiral outwards into all these like shadowy tendrils that touch each person individually, and um, with a single touch, it glows a brief um, sky blue. 
and they're engulfed by this sphere of blue and light and darkness and as it's happening their facial features that the borrowed forms that they were wearing melt away and they look across at one another with triumphant smirks in your true form as you reappear in um a, a landscape of red with stars and um Aurelia Boris above you and you know that you're home and you know that you've done well and that was like how I ended the session and it was like it was a really cool cool two sessions I found yeah you know that's that's, that's, that's cool I like the um I like the the the, the setup that's cool um it just occurred to me that um, I think before we uh, before we go because um, we are like very long, very late. Uh, I made a note here that I should have mentioned the thing that I alluded to previously um, about character abilities. So I mentioned uh, I think in the previous uh, QCon House of Bards that QCon is where I get a lot of use out of the Gale Force Nine spell cards which usually are not particularly useful, I find. Um, but as soon as you get a bunch of people who may or may not know how to play the game around a table, and some of them are going to end up playing spellcasters, that's, that's great. And I thought, well, why don't I take that one step further? I have a bunch of... Um, uh, what do we call these? So um, for those of you who play Magic the Gathering or Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon or any like trading card game, you'll probably know what a binder is, which is a um, plastic booklet full of sheets, um, generally sheets of nine, although you can get smaller booklets of sheets of four, uh, pockets, like little plastic pockets into which um, cards can be slotted. And you generally use that as a portfolio of tradable um, rare uh, cards for for sale you can actually get those kinds of like pocketed um, binder sheets loose like as as individual separate things to go into a like standard three ring binder and having had those I thought oh if I were to like have the these I could print out little cards that had like the abilities that a class had and then that would be great for my game because I could start them out with only a few abilities, and then as the players like got more and more um, abilities, I could just add those into the into the pocket binder, and I could just like, give one of those out alongside the sheet, and then I'm not trying to fit the entirety of the character class into the features and traits section of the sheet, which is not actually what that is for, because I can't use the back of the sheet because some of them um, have spellcasting sheets, which is what goes on the back. So. Um, that's like the one thing that did work very well. Um, I would probably do it again, to be honest, because um, it was just like easy uh, and it laid the information out in a way that helps the players understand with only one actual like additional reference object. So, yeah, uh, th that that was good. And um, if you're running. Uh, for uh, if you're running games like in a convention setting or for people to, to jump in, I recommend something of that sort, um, just so they're not constantly. I mean, I mentioned before, like printing out the like like uh, photocopies, if you like, of the relevant PHP pages uh, as a solution for that before, and that's all right. 
but it does mean they have to scramble for some of that information. Um, whereas I could like make these separate things. Although obviously, in cases where a uh, character got a lot of very small abilities, sometimes they had to go on the same card. So it's a bit swings and roundabouts, I suppose. Uh, that was all I wanted to mention, just because I'd said I was going to mention it earlier. Mm. So if I didn't, people would be mad, unless I cut all the references to that out. But yeah, that was all I wanted to say. I just remembered that I hadn't spoken about that. Uh, I think that's us then. Yeah, um, it's okay. been great listening. Yeah, to it's, the two it's, of you. You know. Yes, yes. Sure. Um, it's great that that we could um, tell you uh, about that. Um, I don't know necessarily that the dream of getting Beth to QCon is ever going to happen, but um, I look forward to the notion, perhaps, of the three of us eventually like meeting up and doing a thing uh, together at some point in the distant future. Uh, that could be a thing, so we could talk yeah. about that. Uh, we have been Alex, Beth, and my co-host is dead, Beth. apparently. <laughs> Uh, and, 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 and and our guest has has been me, Maxie. I, I said my name. I said no, that. you didn't. Yeah, I did. No, we didn't hear you. Whatever. It's, it's most unfortunate. Maybe that was the, Discord's fault. Who hey, knows? look. The, Point look, is, the the people know who I am. Okay. It's it's true. If you haven't figured it, like I hope you're not starting with this episode. This would be a terrible episode to start with. At the very least, if you're going to start with a QCon episode, start with the first one, episode three. Yeah. We, we got the audio quality to a listenable condition at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Great. Go back and go and listen to it. Also, anyway, it, it's really funny as well. I I break down and laughed for like a full five minutes. Alex Alex broke me. It's so. don't don't say that. Don't don't <laughs> so, say that. So, the innocent radio sorry. people. At home. <laughs> no. Wow. Alex Alex gave me the giggles and. A completely innocent. The music way. was by Kevin McLeod, and <laughs> we will see you all next time. Bye-bye. Whatever that may be. Bye. Yes, bye. whatever that may be. Bye-bye.